This morning we are um, continuing in our time in Mark, and it's been really sweet um, to go real slow, to take it um, one step at a time, to watch Jesus and what he's done, how he interacts um, with, with people, how he interacts with, with God, how he takes time and... Um, goes and rejuvenates himself in the presence of God, and then how he goes in ministry, both to those who are hurting and broken. Right? We've seen that so many times throughout um, the book of Mark. But then also his patience with the disciples. So today we're going to kind of zoom into that. What is discipleship? Right? We, we've read these three passages that um, you're like, how do all of those things connect? How do we talk about the the prophecy that Jesus is going to go and suffer and die, and then he talks about little kids, and then he talks about uh, casting out demons. How do all of those things connect? And really what Jesus is doing here is, is he's laying out, hey, this is the way of the king, the suffering Messiah. And then he goes on and he says, and if, if you're going to follow me, like you guys are saying that you're going to do, you're going to follow me in this way. You're going to follow me in the way of suffering. But you're also going to receive a reward because, because the end of Jesus' story is not suffering. The end of Jesus' story is glory and resurrection and power. And so if we participate with Jesus in His suffering, we will also participate with Jesus in His resurrection and His power. And so what a timely gift to us today that if some of us feel like we're suffering or maybe we know people that are suffering and it just seems like it's a lot. That we have the promise of Christ with us right in this moment. We have the gift of knowing Him. Of actually being engaged with Him. Similar to how the disciples are engaged with Him. And we have the gift of the promise that He will come again. And while sometimes we get really distracted and we get um, the, the, the knowing that Jesus is with us can be really tough to grab hold of. Because everything else seems so real. Everything else seems so broken. But we have the promise that one day we won't even have to grab hold of it. He's going to grab hold of us. We're going to see Him face to face. And that's all we're going to know and see. And so even as, like right now, our hope for resurrection and power is just the end of suffering we have a greater promise that, yes, suffering will end, but we probably won't even realize it because we will have Jesus. And everything else will, will just fade away, knowing our Savior. So this morning we're looking at what does this mean for us? What does it mean to be a disciple, to be someone who would follow and chase after Jesus? You see, being a disciple of Jesus requires growing childlike trust in Him. As you lay down your life serving the least, and that's where we're going to press into today. What does that mean, serving the least, sharing in Christ's suffering and death while looking forward to the promise of glorious resurrection with Jesus? That's where we're at. That's what he's teaching the disciples in this moment. And so I pray that we would have ears to hear, that we would have humble hearts that would say, God, you're going to compare me to a child, a helpless babe that can't do anything for himself. <laughs> and we're going, to, we're going to balk at that a little bit. 
Because we're going to say, no, I can do things. I, I have abilities. And yet the reality is that I can't do the things that I need most. I cannot save myself. I cannot save others. I needed someone to come and save me. And so this morning I pray that God would give us that heart to receive that, to be encouraged by that, and to be changed by that. Lord, would you do that in us today? Will you humble our hearts? Will you, by the power of your Spirit, uh, help us to see this truth and to rejoice in it, God? To rejoice in suffering, to rejoice in our helplessness and our need for Jesus, but also rejoice in the call to participate, the call to follow, the call to be with you. God, I pray that as your word is proclaimed um, throughout Brevard County, throughout the nation, throughout the world today, that you would save. Lord, if there would just be one today who would hear for the very first time the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and their life would be, would be radically changed, uh, all the labor, all the participation, all the, the work that uh, you have called us to do would be worth it, Lord. So we pray that you would do that today. God, and that even as um, many of us have heard this before, and maybe this wouldn't be the first time that we would have said yes, but Lord, as we continue to walk in gospel transformation, I pray that we would just be joyful in that. That we would say, God, look what you are doing in our lives. Look how you are changing us and recreating us into your image so that people can see Jesus. Lord, we thank you that we can pray this prayer with confidence today, trusting that this is what you're doing. This is your promise, that you would perfect your bride. And so, Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning, uh, kind of three sections, and that'll, that'll be the three points of, the, of our time together. And so we begin with Jesus. If you remember um, a couple months ago now, we, the first time Jesus told the disciples that he was going to suffer and die, but he would be resurrected. If you remember, they didn't take it all that well. Jesus began that conversation by inviting them into it and saying, hey, who, who do people say that I am? Right? And they had all these different ideas, some... Some would say you're a prophet, some would say you're a teacher, different things. So who do people say that I am? And then he, then he kind of goes more pointedly to the disciples and he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, bold, confident Peter, says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You're the one that we've waited for. And Jesus says, Peter, you're blessed because you didn't come up with that. The Holy Spirit has revealed that to you. God himself has put that in your heart. And then Jesus talks about what does that mean, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Christ. And he says, now, now, we're gonna, now I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. And Peter says, whoa, that's, that's not what I was saying. And Jesus corrects him, rebukes him with a stro- the strongest rebuke that we've heard. Get behind me, Satan, right? The idea that, that Peter is actually longing for something that God has not done, but what Peter wants rather than what God wants. Rather than God's plan. And so, here we're going to see it again. 
right? The second time Jesus is coming to his disciples and he pulls them to himself and he says, listen, this is what it's going to look like. Follow along in verse 30. It says, they went from there and passed through Galilee and he didn't want anyone to know. So they're, they're doing this in a way that is discreet. A way that isn't drawing the crowds. It's just Jesus and the disciples. And there's a, probably many reasons for that because remember at the, the Mount of Transfiguration... Jesus and, and Moses and Elijah are talking about what's going to come. And they're talking about it in a way that's anticipatory. A way that's like, man, this is the plan of God to redeem a people that the Son of God should come and suffer and die for the sins of man. And so they're looking forward to it. And so at that point, we begin to turn our eyes towards Jerusalem. We begin to see how Mark is, is laying the foundation. Yes, we've established that Jesus is the God-man. He is the one who has all power and authority over sickness and humanity and nature, right? But His kingdom looks different from the kingdom that we would expect and want. And so now we've been given that truth. Well, how does that kingdom come about? And Jesus begins His trek is moving towards how that kingdom comes about. How it's going to come about through his death and resurrection. And so Jesus is, is moving towards that. And he's doing it without the crowds, and he's calling the disciples, and, and, and he's teaching his disciples. Verse 31, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Last time, we weren't given um, Jesus' exact words. It wasn't in a quote in Mark 8. But it said the same thing. But in this quote, we're given the idea that Jesus is telling the disciples, listen, the Son of Man, and that's the way that he would refer to himself. We've looked at that before, that the Son of Man means that Jesus is the perfect man. Like we think that because He's God, yeah, he, of course He did everything right. No, but He is the perfect man. He's the one who has walked perfect righteousness so that when He goes to the cross, His atonement is not for His sin, it's for our sin. Our imperfect humanity. He lived out perfect humanity for us to be the perfect sacrifice. And so Jesus says the Son of Man is going to be delivered. Now, delivered um, has been translated a couple different ways. One of the ways that it's translated is betrayed. Um, but in this, in this passage, Jesus is saying, listen, the Son of Man will be delivered. Who could possibly deliver Jesus to do anything? Like, who could make Jesus do anything? We've seen that he can tell the storm. Like, if a storm can't change his, uh, his plan, and he just calms the storm in the midst of it, who can make Jesus do something? Nobody. So who could possibly deliver Jesus into the hands of men? That's the beauty of it. God himself is delivering His Son into the hands of men. And what are we going to do? We're going to do what sinful people do. This isn't accident. 
This isn't our doing. This is the plan of God since the, since the formation, the creation for His glory. How will I gain glory? God would say. I will perfect this gospel work through my Son. I will deliver my Son so that He can pay for a people who couldn't pay for themselves, so that He can redeem a people that can't do it. And He will have a bride for Himself, and all of it points to the glory and majesty of God. So when Jesus says the Son of Man is going to be delivered, He's pointing to the fact that God has already orchestrated all of this. This is plan A. It's not plan B. It's not like, oh, the first one messed up. No, this has always been the plan of God to save a people. It's been the promise of God. When we think about delivering, one of the, one of the phrases that we use is deliver on a promise. Right? If you sell somebody something, then you need to deliver on that promise. The whole Old Testament points to a Messiah who would come, who would redeem a people for God Himself. That's the promise that we have. And here is the delivery of the promise. That God has delivered the Son of Man into the hands of men. That yeah, we, we would betray Him and we would kill Him. But in three days He would rise again. And He would be resurrected. This is the gospel truth that we believe. And it's foundational for everything else. We, we want to talk about sanctification and we want to talk about growth and we want to talk about faith and we want, want to talk about what it means to be the church. All of that is built on this rock. That God in the beginning had a plan. That He would send His Son. That His Son would work perfect righteousness for, our, for a people that needed it. He would atone. Atonement that... When Christ goes to the cross, two things happen for us, His people. The first thing is He takes our sin and our shame. And so in our, in our prayer of confession, maybe some of the, the stuff that you've recognized this week caused you to, to have some shame. Listen, you lay that at the cross and you leave it there because Jesus took your sin and your shame upon Himself and because He takes that upon Himself, now He must die because the wages of sin is death. But we couldn't do that. So He did it for us. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, because at the same time that He takes our sin and our shame, He gives us something. He gives us His perfect righteousness. And you're like, man, I did not see that in my life this week. <laughs> I have good news. When God looked at your life this week, He did see that. If you were in Christ, He saw the righteousness of Christ on your behalf. Wow, that is mind-blowing. Like, that is freedom. When we talk about He who the Son sets free is free indeed, that's what it means, that you are free because on your record is the perfect humanity the perfect love, the perfect kindness of Jesus Christ Himself. And so there's no sin and there's no shame for those who are in Christ Jesus, but only the righteousness of Christ. But that's not the end of the story. 
Again, verse 31 at the end of it. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. This resurrection is where people, where the, where the scribes and the Pharisees really had a hard time. And can we just be honest? That's still where we have a hard time. We can't wrap our heads around the idea that if someone dies, they would be resurrected. We've seen the suffering, we've seen brokenness, but we don't understand what does life mean? What does resurrected life mean? And so we struggle with that. And yet Jesus is proclaiming this truth that I'm going to die. And it will even be by your hands. But I will rise again. How did they respond? Better than last time. They just didn't say anything. <laughs> Peter learns a little bit. He doesn't try to tell Jesus that he's wrong. It says in verse 31, or 32, but they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. So, they don't say anything. Sometimes God's giving them, sometimes Jesus is giving them things that, that they're not going to know in that moment, but later on when he's on the cross, later on when he's rejected by man, when he's betrayed, they're going to be able to look back and say, oh, but Jesus promised this. Jesus actually said that this was going to happen. But he also said, if you remember, and I know it's hard to believe, but if you remember that he would rise again. And so they would be able to go back to this and, and remember what Jesus said. But right now, they don't understand it. They're confused. And so Jesus is laying the foundation. This is what he's going to do. And so if that's what he's going to do, then what does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to be a disciple? And we have that in our next section here. Verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Whenever Jesus begins to uh, engage his disciples, he likes to ask them questions. He likes to engage their hearts. We already talked about it. Last time it was, who do people say that I am? And Jesus already knows what they were talking about on the way. He's not, he, he's not looking for information. He's inviting them into participating with him. He's inviting them into um, engaging with him. And so he asked them, what were you talking about? One of the translations says, what were you arguing about? So he already knows, listen, there's, not only was it a conversation, but you guys are kind of arguing over something, so what is that? And again, they were, they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. When we think about um, this question, it's a question that we all have. Maybe not in comparison to someone else to say greatest or greater, but we want to know what does it mean to be great? What does it mean to 
succeed? What does it mean to grow? What does it mean? Like we're comparing it to something. And, and that's what we're longing for. We want to be the greatest. We want to be the best. The disciples are arguing amongst themselves like, Who's the greatest? Now, one of the reasons that they might have been silent is because they don't actually want to know the answer to the question. Because what if it's not me? Right? What, what if Jesus doesn't say John? Well, then I don't want to know that answer. That's what John's probably thinking. And Peter's thinking, I've already said too much before last time. I'm probably not that guy. Starting to realize it. So they don't say anything. But the question still remains in their heart. Who is the greatest? And Jesus takes that. And again, he wasn't asking because he needed to know. He already knows. So he takes it and he calls them to himself. Look, look at the way he does this. He sat down and he called the twelve. Like that's, That seems like it's just this transitional sentence, this throwaway thing. But in, Jewish, in the Jewish culture, during this time, a rabbi, when he went to teach, would sit down. And so Jesus is taking the seat of authority. And he's saying, listen, I'm going to teach you something. And it's important, so listen. And so he sits down and, he, and it says he called the twelve. Now, I don't know if that's because maybe uh, some of them weren't there, or if he calls them each by name. Like I, Either way, he's, in, he's engaging them individually, one-on-one, and as a group, with the authority of a teacher. There's something powerful there. There's something that we don't, we don't get because our culture is different. But we can look to Jesus and we can say, man, there is, he has the authority to, to speak truth even if I don't like it. Even if his answer to my question of who is the greatest is not Joel. So I can sit there and I can ask the question and then I can receive from the Master. What is His answer? If this is true, if He's assuming this position, He's calling the twelve, He's engaging them, then whatever would come next is super important. What does Jesus share with His disciples here that's so important that He would take that position of authority and engage them? Let's look. He sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. That was not what they were expecting. It's not what we want. It's not what we're expecting. It's not what our culture says. It's not even what uh, the, the logical explanation from how our humanity and how our society functions. It doesn't make sense. Like, how could you be the greatest if you're the least? That's a, that's a paradox. That's, that doesn't make, it's an oxymoron. Like, no, those two things can't be the same. The greatest means the opposite of the least. And yet Jesus is coming in, and, and the way that he's done this throughout his time and his ministry is he's, he's saying, listen, the kingdom of God is different from your kingdom. The kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. It's, it's completely opposite of what you think, what you believe. The way that principalities and powers have been established is not the way that I will establish my kingdom. My kingdom is a kingdom of peace. 
My kingdom is a kingdom of humility. My kingdom is a, is a kingdom where, where people who would seek to gain their life lose their life. Least If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Servant of all. Not like servant of people that you like. Not servant of people that have earned your service. People that have paid for your service. Servant of all. When we wrestle here, Jesus is calling us to walk in the way that He has walked. If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians 2. Philippians 2, Paul takes this idea of the humble servant and he points to the fact that yes, Jesus is calling us to this, but He only calls us to this because He has already walked this way. Philippians 2, we're going to pick it up in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Listen, the disciples knew that that was not the way of Jesus. And the argument that they had been having was a selfish one. Who is the greatest? Am I great? Is a question that's centered around me and my comparison to others. And so they knew that wasn't the way of Jesus. They'd been around Him enough. That we can't, we can't actually tell him what we were talking about because it was not the way that he's leading us in. This idea, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Sounds a lot like what Jesus is saying. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Who others? Like my family others? My friends, others? No, others. Just general, everyone. Other than yourself. How? How? Why would we do this? Because this is the mind that Christ has. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Man, that's powerful. Like, why would Jesus call us and say, hey, if you want to be first, you will be last. You will be the servant of everyone else. You will learn to serve. Well, He calls us to that because He has done that. Jesus, the God-man, gave up heaven left heaven, entered into our humanity, and not like entered into our humanity, which was already a step down and, and humiliating it in and of itself, but he became, but he was like the highest of humans. No, he, he came into our humanity and then he lays down his life and he serves everyone. He becomes the servant of all, emptying himself. Today, that's got to be convicting for us. I know it is for me. The idea that, that I'm called to serve means that the question is not, 
Any question can't begin with me. The question needs to begin with Christ. If I'm following in the way of Christ, He looks to the Father and then He serves others. As disciples and Christians, we then look to Jesus and then we serve others. And, and listen, He gives us this beautiful example of what that looks like. Back in Mark, Verse 36, so he says, you must be last of all and servant of all. And then he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Child translates here to uh, baby or toddler. So we're not talking uh, like a, a 10 year old or a teenager. We're talking about something that is Completely and utterly helpless. He grabs this baby and he holds it. Man, can you imagine? Like, I, I can only imagine the peace that that baby feels in the arms of his Savior. But that's not the point. The point is, Jesus is grabbing this baby and he's, and he's saying, listen, if you receive, if you serve this child, this helpless child who can't do anything for him or herself, can't eat, can't provide? Like it's going to take a lot to lay down your life and serve this child. Listen, if you have kids, you know a little bit about what I'm talking about. If you don't, that's okay too because you can imagine. You, you know some kids. You know some babies. They don't do anything. They only need. <laughs> they do not give you much in the way of productivity. They take We don't think that that's fair. We have an idea that no, but my service should at least be acknowledged. But if you've ever been a parent of a child and they wake up at three in the morning screaming their head off and you have to get up and you have to go and serve them, whether that's standing and rocking them or whether that's putting them in the cars and driving them around so that they can sleep or if you're a nursing mother nursing that babe, you get nothing from that Accept the relationship. And yet, for some reason, in other relationships, we think that, but you should at least acknowledge what I'm doing for you. Maybe even reciprocate. And that's what service would look like. But Jesus takes the example of the child. And listen, He's going to reference children a lot in, the, in this week and in the coming weeks. There's so much that we can learn from, from a childlike faith and then from even a, an idea that, no, we're helpless like that. We are the helpless child who can't actually provide anything, but we go to the one who does and has provided everything for us. And then we treat others in that same way. We serve them in a way that says, listen, I'm expecting nothing from you. And I'll give you everything that I have. That's what Jesus is calling us to here. And it takes a lot for us to get our heads around that. It takes a lot because we think we've been, our society points to the fact, no, but you, you've earned something. You deserve something. And Jesus is saying, no, listen. When I say you must be last and you must be servant of all, this is what I'm talking about. 
Look at this babe. Can't do anything. But as soon as you receive it, as soon as you welcome it, as soon as you serve it, you're serving me. And not only me, but, but you're serving the Father. You're serving God Himself by taking care of the needs of those who can't take care of themselves. And I think a lot of that is tangible needs, but I think even more so it's, it's the spiritual need that we would say, listen, you have in Jesus, you have everything that you need. Because if we only meet people's tangible needs without ever giving them the one thing that they need for eternal life, then we're robbing them. And, the same, and it's vice versa, right? If we just give them Jesus and say, listen, Jesus is going to fix all of your problems, but they have real suffering and problems right now, we're robbing them of opportunities that we have to serve them and to give. And so it has to be both and. And so I would call us to be that people. A people that would serve without any expectation of anything in return. How can, how can you do that? How can you ask for that? Well, Jesus is kind and He keeps going. Verse 38, this last section. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Listen, the irony there, right? Last week, the disciples couldn't cast out the demon because they, they were trying to do it in and of their own strength. This other guy is casting out demons in the name of Jesus, which would say, hey, I have a trust and a faith and a prayer that Jesus can do this, and the demons are being cast out. And, and I don't know if it's jealousy or what, but John's like, listen, that guy is not part of us, and yet he's doing this thing where he's casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him. Why would you try to stop him, John? Like, that's a good thing. That's what we want. Jesus says, do not stop him. For one who does a mighty work in my name will soon after, will be able soon after, excuse me. Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For this one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This disciple that, that is not part of the twelve, but must be a disciple of Jesus, because otherwise he would not be able to cast out the demons in the name of Jesus. He's, he's receiving a reward, like he is serving others. And that's what Jesus is calling us to, is the service of others without any expectation. But then he promises... In verse 41, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Yeah, the call today to discipleship is a call to, to suffer, to serve, to lay down your life for the sake of others. But it's also a promise that you will receive a reward if you do that for the sake of Christ, for His glory, because you... You are serving Christ Himself. You're serving God Himself when you do it to the least of these. And the reward is that we get to participate with Christ. We get to be with Him. 
in His suffering. And we, we have the promise that one day we will be with Him in His resurrection, in His glory, and in His power. Listen, all of this is super hard for us. It goes counter to everything that we know of society and of our world. I love the way that James Edwards puts it in his pillar commentary. He says, At no point does the way of Jesus diverge more sharply from the way of the world than on the question of greatness. Jesus does not exactly repudiate prominence and greatness, but he redefines them. The challenge is to be great in things that matter to God. Nothing is greater than God, in God's eyes than giving, and no vocation affords the opportunity to give more than that of a servant. As a servant, you give everything. Everything that you have goes to someone else. As servants of the living God, Everything that we have goes to God. And the way that that happens is often it will go to others. We will serve others. We will give our lives for each other. Both those that we like, those that we don't like, those that we really have a hard time with. God is often putting us in relationship with them to change us, to redefine our hearts. To begin to see his image in those that we were having a hard time seeing it in. And God then calls us to lay down our lives to serve. Listen, we have a desire to be great. But our definition of great is wrong. Our definition of great often doesn't look like Jesus who gave himself up. Who laid down his life. And yet, by grace, it is beginning to look like that. By grace, we're beginning to see that and say, that is beautiful. I want to be like that. And then we're seeing it in each other and we're being encouraged and we're saying, man, I saw what you did there. And it looked a little bit like Jesus and I'm thankful for it. I see your marriage and I see that, that you guys lay down your lives for one another and it looks like Jesus. It reminds me of Jesus. I see the way that you love your children and the way that you've loved my children. I've seen the things that you give up and it looks a little bit like Jesus and it's beautiful. And I pray that God would continue to do that in us as His people for His glory and that we would see it and we would just be in awe and rejoice God, thank you for the opportunity to suffer for your name, the opportunity to serve for your name, the opportunity to walk with people for your name, for your greatness. The passage in Philippians continues on. We pick it up in verse 8. It says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Remember, it's talking about Jesus. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Sorry, I'm way off. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. That's what we have. 
That's the promise that we have. The reward that we have. That God will be glorified. That every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. And we get to be one of the confessors. We get to be one of the people that point to His greatness. Participate in it and say, that is our God and He is good and mighty and beautiful and holy. Look at Him. And then we get to spend all of eternity making that confession. Enjoying our God. Knowing our God and enjoying Him forever. This morning I would call you to repent. I'd call us to repent. We've forgotten. We've, we've had a different idea of what greatness looks like. And we've pursued it. Thankfully, by God's grace and the work of His Holy Spirit, often we don't pursue it too far and He reminds us again. But we need to repent. God, where have we chased after a greatness other than laying down our lives, other than being last, other than serving everyone, other than being a servant of all? Where have we sought greatness other than in the person and form of Jesus Christ? And then I would call you to believe. Call you to believe that God is doing that in us. That He's changing us and conforming us to His image so that we can actually value those things. We, we look at that, that beautiful sacrifice and we say, that's what I want to do. That's who I want to be. I want to be the image of Christ to a world that needs to see it. I want to be the image of Christ to my wife. I want to be the image of Christ to my friends, to my family, even to my enemies, even to people that I don't like. I want them to see Jesus. And so this morning, we were called to repent and to believe the truth of this gospel. Pray that we would walk in that today. Let's pray. God, you're so good. We know it. We thank you that we don't have to wait for that moment where every knee will bow, but, but our knee can be bowed now and we can confess that you are Lord. God, thank you for what you're doing in us by your grace, by your spirit, through your word giving us new affections and new desires, a desire to be last rather than first, a desire to be a servant. God, and then the promise that in those places where we are serving, we are serving along Christ. In those places where we are suffering, we are suffering with Christ. And that one day we will be resurrected with Christ in His glory. God, I thank You that all your promises are yes and amen. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the work of the gospel. Lord, that through your death and your resurrection, you have redeemed a people to yourself, and you're making us holy as you are holy. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.